Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. Karin Kusama just directed this movie. It is called Destroyer. We'll talk a little bit more about the movie, particularly in just a minute, but Karin is a really unique voice in film right now. Her debut was the critically acclaimed drama Girl Fight, a movie about a female boxer that Kusama based on her own time in the movie. Then she established herself as an auteur of genre films. In 2005, she directed the science fiction film Eon Flux, The horror movies The Invitation and Jennifer's Body came after that. And now there is Destroyer, a dark and complex crime drama told largely in flashback. It stars Nicole Kidman, who plays Aaron Bell, an LAPD detective. As a young cop, Bell was placed undercover with a gang in the California desert. Things didn't end well, and the case she was on was never put to rest. When the leader of that gang reemerges over a decade later, Bell reopens the case. Kidman's character is haunted by her memory of the past, and it's put a strain on her relationship with her daughter Shelby, who has started acting out. She drinks, she skips school, she has a fake ID. In this clip, Erin is sitting in a Chinese restaurant with her daughter. Things get very heavy. I'm not good. I'm the one who's bad. It's not you. All right? I'm sorry for lying to you. I lied, I stole, and worse. (laughs) You can be better than me. Karin Kusama, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. That scene actually looked like it was shot. I might be wrong, but it looked like it was shot like... uh, just two, up the street. Yeah, at, two the, blocks at the from Bamboo here. Bamboo Inn, yep. The Bamboo Inn, which is like a restaurant here in Westlake in Los Angeles in our neighborhood that literally still has a sign outside that says Chop Suey. Yep. Like a, yep. a pure 1960 experience, mm-hmm. completely unexpurgated. Yeah, it's an incredible – and that space is incredible. It hasn't been changed or updated and actually is more – more beautiful and more moody and incredible for it. What were the things about Los Angeles that you wanted to capture both aesthetically and thematically? Mm. I, you know, I think people who don't live here assume that sunshine has a kind of joyous, almost shallow quality. <laughs> and for me, when I walk outside every day, it's just almost a, a kind of dread every sunny day. I feel. <laughs> I mean, I I feel a kind of relentlessness to the sunshine that feels um, punishing, damaging, scarring, somehow apocalyptic. And I wanted to express that in a film. And in this case, it was thematically tied into the idea of a character whose greatest adversary is herself and who least wants to look closely at herself and yet feels exposed at every second. And how better to depict that than see her constantly sort of squinting into the sun. 
Yeah, I mean, there's this quality. I th- and I think it, to me it has something to do with the aridness of Los Angeles mm-hmm. as well. Th- that while the heat is rarely extraordinary, like it's mm-hmm. it's often in the summer in the you know the low 90s, but it's not the hottest place in the mm-hmm. world. This isn't Phoenix, Arizona. Mm-hmm. But there's something about that quality of relentlessness of and the sort of hot dryness that, as you said, kind of beats you. Mm -hmm. Like, and that's that kind of physical toll of Mm -hmm. time and environment is almost a a theme in the movie. Oh yeah, and I think I want to say a kind of physical and spiritual degradation that is a theme in the film that that comes from a deprived resource center that's both self-generated in that she she doesn't take care of herself but then it's like she's in a place that you can feel the lack of water you can feel the lack of moisture you can feel um that hot dry beating sun and that's something to me that uh makes me think about you know lizards and 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 snakes and creatures that manage to become hardy in the most deprived environments and yet we're afraid of them for and perhaps sometimes for good reason and that's a bit of a mirror i think to the the main character of the film there are a lot of movies about morally ambiguous protagonists mm-hmm. especially police officers mm-hmm. who are wronged in some way and they're out for justice and they're trying to find it mm-hmm. however they can. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of those movies are really good. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I really like John Wick 2 mm-hmm. where <laughs> I think they at the beginning they kidnap his dog mm-hmm. and then the rest <laughs> of it is just aesthetically stylized violence for 90 minutes and then eventually gets his dog back. Right, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> With a very high body count. Yeah, exactly. But it's very beautiful the mm-hmm. whole way through. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're like, oh my God, look at all that. Mm-hmm. But it seems like you wanted to complicate that. And some of the biggest box office hits of the past 10 or 15 years, especially in the action movies, are mm-hmm. re- revenge movies. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this whole genre of uh, dads getting their daughters kidnapped. Sure. It seems like you wanted to complicate that, and and you didn't just want to complicate that by replacing a man with a woman, that there was more that you wanted to complicate. Yeah, and I didn't want to replace a man with a woman. I, I wanted a woman to stand kind of uh, on her own within the role. I wanted us to question why we assume this is male space at all. Not just the notion of vengeance, but the idea of moral ambiguity. You know, when women aren't allowed to be morally ambiguous— or even monstrous, it's a disservice to all of humanity, in my opinion, because we need we need to understand our own capacity for light and dark. And if and if and if we keep making some assumption that women's capacity for darkness doesn't exist, then then that's sort of an assumption that just contributes to our own complicity in our dehumanization, you know? And so for me, I um, a couple of things. I'm, I'm. I was about to say the words literally advancing in age, which makes it sound like I'm, you know, like marching to my grave. I'm not. But... We, bad news, audience. We're all marching towards our <laughs> yeah, graves. Yeah, yeah. But what I really mean is just that, like, I've made some films, I've lived some life, and now I can't look at those vengeance films and answer to the 11 year old son that I'm raising with any dignity. I, I have to find a different way forward because I know that. 
vengeance is emotionally satisfying, but kind of the way angel food cake is. You know, it's it's there and then it's not there. There's no there there. <laughs> and so for me, I felt like I needed to give the audience a sense of being grounded in a story that they might already know and peel back those layers to either encourage them to ask the question, do they know these stories? Why do we think, why do we have the expectations we do of them? And what more could we see from them? And in fact, how can we expand the conversation? So having a woman occupying the central role was just as much a function of the movie having to be a character study as anything else. But it also felt like the only reason for being in terms of making the movie was that she be this interesting woman, um, simply because of what you say. We've we've seen we've seen men occupy this story at sometimes in some ways satisfyingly, but in many respects unsatisfyingly, as far as I'm concerned. So I just felt like, why not take a crack at something I feel I know a little bit better, which is really dark, complicated women. Let's talk about genre movies for a second, because you made a lot of genre movies. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, in in some ways, it's a subversion of a particular genre, mm-hmm. but it certainly exists within a genre. Mm-hmm. And there are some like real badass parts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a big yeah. there's a big bank heist mm-hmm. in the middle mm-hmm. w- with a lot of crazy, exciting shooting and crazy mm-hmm. masks, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. What are the benefits of that genre for storytelling? Like, why why make this movie with a bunch of you know intermittent brutal violence uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, rather than simply make it as as you know like a, a woman who's in AA and has to go from person to person making amends? Yeah, I mean, and look, you know what? That movie sounds really interesting to me too. I guess it's just there's something about the movies that are lodged in my imagination and lodged in my childhood that almost always ended up being Dog Day Afternoon, Taxi Driver, Rosemary's Baby, Clute, The Parallax View, uh, The French Connection. You know, like these movies somehow felt like an American expression, one, actually sort of a kind of regional or, you know, a kind of filmmaking of a place in, you know, and in this case, I would just say a kind of an expression of this fascinating mess we call the United States. And I feel like these were movies that spoke very profoundly to their times without ever directing the times themselves, like without ever directing attention to them. And so for me, I, I guess I just feel like there's an opportunity with genre films to invest them with ideas. You know, like a great example for me is a movie like Alien. That's a movie about trash collectors in space. It's about working people. And most genre movies are. Um, I think they're really about regular people stuck in really, really heightened, terrible situations or in messes that feel extraordinary, but in fact are an expression of how most people live, which is day-to-day and fingernail by fingernail. And so for me, it's interesting to explore that and have the pleasure principle of movies at work. I'm just, I, I love my art films, and I'll watch Fanny and Alexander every single year for the rest of my life. 
And those movies are important to me. But I also need, and I would never say that a lot of those art films are not, in many respects, deeply, deeply pleasurable to me. But the idea that I could maybe reach people who I don't expect to communicate to with my movies, um, not that it's the first goal, but it's certainly a tertiary one to have people who aren't like me still say, that movie spoke to me. And that just seems like that's the the hope of what we do, you know, trying to communicate. Uh, let's talk about horror for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not seen your horror films because I'm scared to watch them. Oh. Because I'm scared of horror movies. Oh. There, you should see both of them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I don't often admit those the gaps in my knowledge, but I am sincere in my being afraid to watch horror movies. So... <laughs> I appreciate that. What are the what are the special things about a horror movie that makes it compelling and exciting for you, either as a viewer or as a filmmaker? Well, as as both, I would say what first comes to mind is that horror movies are no matter what the plot is, and it can be many things, obviously. There's so many kinds of horror movies. They are speaking the language of dreams. And that allows for, I think, opportunities as a viewer to see a story be told in a, in a different kind of way, and we still accept it. Uh, and as a filmmaker, there are ways then that I can tell a story that are outside of what are the traditional conventions. And I think we can also really evoke the power of literally the power of what happens in our dream life. You know, there there's there's a sequence in Texas Chainsaw Massacre in, in Toby Hooper's original, which I think is a masterpiece, in which we watch a woman run from one utterly terrifying situation to find safety, and we realize that she's just run straight back to her captors. And that's like a classic bad dream. I mean, you know, that, that is a bad dream. Uh, you know, we, that's the definition of a bad dream. And yet it's it, 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 so, so you can watch something kind of take on the hallucinatory logic of a dream, which in some ways by watching it as opposed to dreaming it yourself – I think gives me a little bit more control over the situation. So while I understand not watching horror films because you're afraid of them, I watch them because I'm afraid of them. Like I need to feel some control over the experience of my own terror and it gives me some shape. And so in some ways I see it as like this um, opportunity to, to safely investigate the horrors of our life as opposed to actually experience them, which is the bigger horror, you know, living, <laughs> living, <laughs> living here on Earth, I think is kind of the bigger, the bigger terror, you know. I think we found our pull quote for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I have a pretty, um, I have a pretty dark way of looking at the world. And I, so for me, and I don't mean to, I I want to be a more hopeful, optimistic person. But the fact is, I don't, I don't think we have a ton of reason for it. And so for me, making movies that make sense of or attempt to say that the act of trying to make sense, regardless of your success in that endeavor, is is some step toward the positive. That's about as much as I can hope for. Another thing about horror movies is that they are one of the only types of film that has 
majority or at least a plurality of its audience uh, as mm-hmm. young women. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and often there, though, though one, though I know the conventional wisdom is that many of its female characters are are terrorized and marginalized by their very femaleness. And while that can be true, some of our most successful horror films actually have women front and center, which I think distinguishes it from a lot of other genres. More with Karen Kusama after a quick break. Still to come, she'll talk to me about Jennifer's Body, the very scary, very funny movie she directed in 2009. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome. Thank you. These are real podcast listeners, not actors. What do you look for in a podcast? Reliability is big for me. Power. I'd say comfort. What do you think of this? Oh. That's Jordan Jesse Go. Jordan Jesse Go? They came out of the floor? And down from the ceiling? That can't be safe. I'm upset. Can we go now? Soon. Jordan Jesse Go, a real podcast. Hey, gang, it's Jesse. Really quick, this week on Fresh Air, Terry Gross sits down with comic Kevin Hart to talk about his work and recent controversy. Find that interview and other long form interviews with the biggest names in entertainment, journalism, and books in the Fresh Air feed. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Karin Kusama, directed the new film Destroyer, starring Nicole Kidman. It's out in theaters now. Kusama also directed Eon Flux, The Invitation, and Jennifer's Body, the cult horror comedy classic from 2009. I want to play a scene from your film Jennifer's Body from mm. 2009. Mm. Um, this is a film that uh, a lot of folks that I know who love this kind of movie love absolutely without... Uh, without reservation. Mm-hmm. Um, Took it, some time, but yes, I'm happy yeah. to hear that. <laughs> um, it, it's about two high school best friends, two young women uh, named Needy and Jennifer, played by uh, Amanda Seyfried and uh, Megan Fox. Mm-hmm. And Megan Fox's character is possessed by a demon that leads her to literally consume people and particularly her boyfriends. Mm-hmm. In this clip from the movie, Jennifer, who's the one with the demon inside her, uh, calls up her best friend, who's also, by the way, kind of in love with her, <laughs> um, and talks about how great it is to be possessed by a demon, essentially. I feel so scrumptious. Goody for you. You know when you kiss a boy for the first time and it feels like your entire body is on vibrate? Yeah, it's that good. Well, that's nice. Um, me, I'm still a little bit depressed about, you know, the giant smoldering funeral pyre in the middle of town. <sighs> Moveon.org, needy, it's over. Life is too short to be moping around about some white trash pig roast. That's sweet, Jen. You know, I tell it like it is. And besides, you know what? You should be happy for me because I'm having the best day since, like, Jesus invented the calendar. Jesus didn't invent the calendar. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's funny to hear it that way. (laughs) Divorced from images. (laughs) Sorry, it's the best we can do. Yeah. (laughs) Karen. Um, 
I mean, we'll get there eventually. <laughs> it seems like it would be a distraction when people are driving. Yeah, you know? I know. The hologram in yeah. front of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was obviously like the the movie that when Diablo Cody, who wrote it, uh, became the most famous screenwriter in Hollywood mm-hmm. after writing Juno. Mm-hmm. This was what she wanted to do. Like mm-hmm. this was her this was her pick. She's like, mm-hmm. I, I want to make this movie. How did you end up attached to it? I, I had read the script and they hadn't found a director yet. I know they were out to a couple directors. And I just I laughed and cried. It was like that kind of script for me. And I, I growing up, I watched movies like Heather's and An American Werewolf in London and The Howling and these movies that had humor and a, a horror component to them. And I just I just felt like this is so my wheelhouse. This is so where my 17-year-old self lives and feels the most uh, spoken to. And I just felt like what made the script so brilliant was that it really was about a very, very dysfunctional friendship between two girls. And there was the alpha girl and there was the not alpha girl. And as someone who was the not alpha girl, it, it meant that I could read this part of Needy Lesnicki and completely identify with her and understand the idea that you would want to protect your best friend who also is the person who torments you the most. That's very female, very specific, and might have some male parallel that I'm not you know, as aligned to. But I just think there's something about that dysfunction that just like spoke to me. And then I just thought there was an opportunity for a lot of incredible images. And so I had put together this lookbook that I haven't, I don't have a memory of having more fun putting this book together. For me, it's a long process of like, just sitting and looking at art books and looking at photography and, and just thinking about about images and what excites me and what speaks to me. And putting that together was just like, um, I don't know, it just like re-energized me because I was at a, I'd just made, I'd, I'd finished this movie, Eon Flux, that was considered a disaster. And it was just, there's something about reading something so exciting for me that um, I just went in there like kind of guns blazing and just said, you can hire whoever you want, but I'm the right person to, to direct this movie. <laughs> what were the images in the lookbook? Do you remember? There's, I have this book of um, horror films that really looked at a lot of the Hammer horror films out of England. And there's just this supermodel, basically, from like the 60s with blood dripping down her mouth and a, a kitten hanging out of it. <laughs> and it's so – it's like – it's almost like erotic but disgusting and and just completely over the top. I, you know, like who – how can – you know, like there was something about that that just that kind of image was front and center in my in my lookbook to say here's the tone, you know, because the, the script was very clear. I mean when, when Jennifer pulls there, – there was a point where Jennifer is like eating out of – the chest cavity of a guy, the you know the the star quarterback that she just seduced and then murders, and they described his intestines as as sort of flying around like confetti, and or like party streamers, and I just remember thinking like, ooh, that's really horrible and 
and horribly funny. And so that's what the, the lookbook was communicating. And then there was a process of me, you know, by showing everybody that and talking it through with them. I got them. I got the movie eventually. Was there a point after you had made the film that you realized how much of people's reaction to the film was going to be about the that moment's cultural relationship to Diablo Cody and Megan Fox, the star? Mm-hmm. Well, I think what I've come to realize is that the surface interpretation from, for me at the time was, oh, this reveals the culture's relationship to Diablo Cody and Megan Fox. As the years progress, I realize this is always the relationship we're going to have with powerful women. It's just whether or not that the most nihilistic and toxic expression of that relationship gets gets a voice. You know, it's like Megan Fox's image as a celebrity, her image within Transformers, which itself is Michael Bay's fantasy of a female character in Transformers. None of that is actually who Megan is or was. And so there were so many levels, I think, of deep misunderstanding about about how to frame this movie. I think what it was was that there was like a failure to understand that the movie was more sophisticated than its marketing materials. And that that's that's tricky and requires a lot of work. And and the attitude I think at the time was well look, you know, we have one of the best marketing teams in in the world and we can make any piece of make money. And unfortunately <laughs> for me, the the message implicit in that was even this one when in fact there could have been an opportunity to embrace what actually did make it cool and interesting and funny and scary and worth watching and worth talking about. And so there were so many levels where like things could have gone a different way and they just didn't – so many you know steps in the process that were sort of the exact wrong thing happened each time. I think maybe also straight dudes mm-hmm. like myself are not as – facile with the language of uh, camp Mm -hmm. as uh, other segments of the population might be. Uh, Though it's funny because ironically to me, I look at the language of Independence Day and Transformers and Pacific Rim and like that's a kind of camp. It's just a it's it's just co- it's coded for men. A Thomas Kincaid painting I was just looking at where there's literally a, a like it's like a flyover by the mm. uh, by some fighter jets on a NASCAR arena with like fireworks exploding mm-hmm. in the air and like a bunch of American flags in it mm-hmm. as well. And they're all sparkling with the light of a thousand suns. Mm-hmm. See, for me, it's like if I were to become, you know, my own version of Thomas Kincaid, it might be that painting with like a young woman at the edge of a lake, like puking into it. So, <laughs> so to give you a sense of like, you know, I'm all for, you know, a multitude of 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 languages represented, you know, media languages represented, but I, there's ways to tweak it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the other piece of that besides the way people were trying to deal with Megan Fox as mm-hmm. a celebrity at the time is that, you know, one of Diablo Cody's great qualities as a screenwriter is her cleverness, mm-hmm. and that's a quality that has brought many 
genre filmmakers many millions of dollars. Oh you know, God. all of the world's Shane Blacks and Max Landis's and Quentin Tarantino's and Quentin Tarantino's and, yep. have uh, have m- made squajillions mm-hmm. on making a genre movie that has well executed cuteness in it, mm-hmm. and people were really mad at her about that yeah. at the time. Yeah, it was almost as if the message was, no, you don't get to speak from your own made-up voice. You have to speak by my rules. Well, why? Why why does Diablo have to speak from anybody's rules but her own? And the fact that she was so defiantly saying, nope, this is just how I do it, you know, love it or leave it, um, it pissed people off. And it was really interesting because writers so rarely, being married to one and loving the experience as a filmmaker with working with screenwriters, writers so rarely get the opportunity to be acknowledged as creators. And yet they are indisputably the creators of so much of what we consume in storytelling. And it's almost like there's a resentment baked in to the act of creating. We just hate the fact that, like, an actor doesn't say these words having thought of them themselves or a director doesn't show up on set and just say, you know what, I think would be a great, you know, second act curtain, this. And so for Diablo to have staked out that territory where she actually got to be a creator with with a voice that was that distinctive, it's almost like it's almost like it made people furious. And I now see I, I, I'm now I now have a really different kind of um, reaction to like the loudness in culture because I have to question the volume itself. Like I have to wonder what what is this about? What what's actually underneath all of this? Because it tends to be so many carefully sort of constructed messages that if I really like look more carefully, I'm like, oh, I just fell for that like everybody else. Well, we're out of time, but I'm so grateful that you came to be here on Bullseye. Thank you very much, Karin. It was so great to talk to you. Thanks. Karin Kusan, folks. Her film Destroyer is in theaters now. It's great. Nicole Kidman is up for a Golden Globe for her role in it. Also, if you'd like to hear even more from Karin Kusama, she did a fantastic interview on our sister show here at Max Fund, Switchblade Sisters, with April Wolf. On Switchblade Sisters, female filmmakers and folks from the film industry talk about their favorite genre films. Karin talked about Catherine Bigelow's film, Near Dark. We'll have a link to that on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where our senior producer, Laura, drove past quite a scene on her way home after a late-night recording session last night. Uh, There was a fire truck blocking part of a westbound lane. There was some kind of suspect detained on the sidewalk standing in front of the concrete fence. She slowed down. She tried to check it out. Couldn't figure out what was up. Then... What's this? One of the palm trees is charred black? Yes, it was. You can probably tell I'm just reading from the email Laura sent us about this. If you know what the heck was going on, please tell us. Living in the city is fun. 
The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We have help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow here at Max Fun is Shana Deloria. Our interstitial music comes from Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Thanks, as always, to Dan for sharing it. He does have a collection of his music from Bullseye, by the way, up on Bandcamp. Just search for DJW Bullseye Music. Our theme music is by the Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for providing that music to us. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, there are hundreds on our website. Just go to MaximumFun.org. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.